This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On Thursday the 9th of May, Dumfries police received a report from someone walking their dog along the bank of the River Leven. They had thought they'd seen something in the water, and as they made their way closer towards the item, they realised it was a torso. A podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Amy Anderson June and Ian Anderson had always wanted a family, and it wasn't long before they were well into living the life of parental duties, along with school runs and looking after their two daughters, Greer and Gail. They decided to have one more child to complete their family. Amy Anderson came along soon after, and the sisters were brought up in Crossmichael, a village just five miles north of the market town of Castle Douglas, in the southwestern area of Scotland. Their home village was by all means picturesque, with scenic locks, winding rivers and paths, masses of hills and woods, as well as a church, post office, pub and a marina, where boating, fishing and wild swimming were always on the endless list of things to do each weekend. Amy loved to spend time with her close-knit family, often spending days at a time in the wee book hoose, one of the smallest libraries in Scotland. The three girls attended the local primary school, and when they reached high school age, travelled to Castle Douglas High School, just three miles away from their family home. Amy was known by everyone, especially for the distinctive glasses she wore. The children were well known for always being smartly dressed, considerate and polite. Amy was referred to as having a carefree spirit and a bright future ahead of her. The girls enjoyed a close bond throughout their teenage years and got on well with both of their parents. However, things did shift when the girls' parents split up. Amy decided to move to Dumfries with her mother June. Things were different, but they were going well. Amy began to attend Dumfries and Galloway College studying a course on life skills before deciding to study full-time on a catering course. She was always on time and worked extremely hard. Her attendance record was excellent and she was meeting all of her predicted grades. She even met a boy at college called Brian Galloway. He had joined the same college and was a student there. However, Things did change when Amy discovered she was pregnant. She made the decision to leave school so that she could become a full-time mother. She and Brian moved in together and a few months later, baby Lauren was born. Unfortunately, Brian had not only brought love and care into Amy's life, 
but he had begun to introduce her to hard drugs, specifically heroin. It came to light that Brian had moved from Alexandria, around 100 miles away, to come to Dumfries and Galloway College in an attempt to give up heroin. His attempt had not been successful, and after introducing Amy to the drug, the couple began using regularly, and their life soon spiralled out of control. Amy had already left education, She was raising a baby, and the couple had no work and no money. Amy was evicted from her flat, and social services soon intervened. At just six months old, Lauren was taken into temporary care. Amy's parents, Ian and June, were devastated that their daughter had gone from such a bright and promising young woman to someone dependent on heroin and losing her freedom and life. Fortunately, however, they were allowed to take six-month-old Lauren into their care, with the understanding that when Amy was back on her feet, she could be reintroduced into Lauren's life permanently. However, over the following few months, Amy's life regressed further and although she was in receipt of DSS benefits, it wasn't enough to fund her or Brian's addictions. So the couple began to steal and beg on the streets, and Amy turned to sex work. Over the course of the 13 months since Amy started taking heroin, her life had completely flipped, and by January of 2002, She and Brian were living with other homeless people who were addicted to drugs, mainly heroin, and staying in an abandoned industrial container with just candles for light and sheets as a makeshift bed. The couple would occasionally visit the Salvation Army halls in Alexandria for support and help, but it was always temporary. Amy's family were of course extremely worried about her and had tried a number of times to talk her back into living with them and sorting her life out. But addiction is much more difficult to conquer than that and they could do very little in the way of helping her. Towards the end of April, Ian went to visit his daughter and tried again to get her to give up heroin for good. She told him she wanted to, and she would do it eventually. But she couldn't do it now. Not yet. She continued living on the streets and in and out of the abandoned containers with Brian and a number of other homeless people for the next week. In early May 2002, Brian was involved in an altercation which ended up with him being stabbed multiple times. He was rushed to the nearby Leven Hospital and placed in intensive care. He was declared stable, but needed to remain in hospital to be monitored and to recover. On Thursday the 9th of May, Dumfries police received a report from someone walking their dog along the bank of the River Leven. 
They had thought they'd seen something in the water, and as they made their way closer towards the item, they realised it was a torso. Forty detectives were called in to work on the case, along with police divers and cadaver dogs. The team searched the river, but were unable to locate any other body parts. The River Leven is the second fastest flowing river in Scotland, so it wasn't a surprise that no other body parts were immediately located, and officers knew that it would prove difficult to determine exactly where the torso was dumped. Forensic investigators also began searching a nearby landfill site for clues. Officers also widened their search for any information relating to the drivers of a blue transit or Sherpa van and a light-coloured Ford Escort van that was seen on the towpath near the river between the late evening of Tuesday the 7th of May and midday on Wednesday the 8th of May. It was determined that the person had been killed within 36 hours before their remains were found. Forensic teams continued work and a post-mortem examination was carried out as officers waited to find out who had died as well as how. It was soon revealed that the deceased person was in fact Amy Anderson. The post-mortem was difficult because of the fact that only the torso was found. However, the cause of death was examined by three different pathologists and the unanimous opinion was that, although it was unknown and unascertainable, there were petechial hemorrhages identified in the lungs, which were seen as consistent with asphyxiation. At a press conference organised immediately following the discovery of Amy's torso, Amy's mum and dad attended and spoke a few words. Ian sat beside June as she read a statement out for the cameras and public watching. She expressed her grief and said that she and Ian had tried desperately to get Amy help and off of drugs just before her death. Quote, Amy was our youngest child. She was a lovely, good-natured girl. Everybody who knew Amy all said how full of life she was. She really adored her little girl, Lauren. She's just a year old. Obviously, we are absolutely horrified at what has happened to our daughter and we would hate any other parent to have to go through the suffering that we have. Unquote. Officers conducted their investigation immediately and were keen to speak to any and all witnesses. Detective Superintendent Stephen Ward, who was leading the investigation, said, quote, A family liaison officer has been appointed to keep Amy's family aware of any progress with our inquiry. We are anxious to speak to anyone who knew Amy and who can shed any light on her whereabouts since Saturday. She has stayed at various addresses in the Alexandria area since she moved there and we are keen to find out where she had been prior to the date she went missing and who she associated with. Unquote. Investigators quickly located the people they believed were in regular contact with Amy 
or had seen her close to the time she died. We know, because we're true crime writers, readers and listeners, that the first person police look into when there's been a murder is the husband or wife, the partner. In this case, officers knew that Brian had been in hospital with stab wounds from the 6th of May to the 8th of May. However, on further investigation, they came to understand that even though the nursing notes documented that Brian was settled and sleeping, it would have been possible for him to have left the ward without his absence necessarily having been noticed. Something that backed this up, or certainly added to the complexity of the case, was the fact that during the early hours of the 8th of May, three midwives, who, because of the nature of their work, were required to note very specific times with care, were able to say with certainty that between 1.05 and 1.25 that morning, they heard horrific screams coming from outside the hospital, from the direction of the main road. There was also evidence that Brian had been up and about, collecting medication from the duty nurse at around 1.35am. Officers believed there was a possibility Brian had left the hospital around the time the midwives had heard the screaming. However, on further examination, although it wasn't impossible, it did seem highly unlikely. Investigators opened up their lines of inquiry and continued questioning known acquaintances of Amy, as well as searching the areas in and around Amy's known local hangouts. It was decided that Detective Superintendent Stephen Ward, the investigation lead, would make an appearance on Crime Watch UK as an attempt to appeal for new information. It was agreed that Detective Superintendent Ward would talk about the murder and certain events and circumstances would be discussed, but there wouldn't be a reconstruction. As it was so soon after the discovery of the torso, there was only a limited amount of information available, and as is common in the early stages of investigations, officers wanted to keep some details private. He noted Amy's distinctive glasses that were instantly recognisable. Quote, If anybody has seen the glasses lying about in this area, please come forward to us. Unquote. Whilst Crime Watch was airing, Detective Superintendent Ward said he was particularly keen to speak to a previous caller who had given some information about a van. He went on to say it was extremely important that the person called back because this information was relevant to the progression of the investigation. Quote, I have no doubt that there is more that this person can tell me about the van and how it was involved in the crime. Unquote. He also said that it was likely someone would have seen something on the night in question because the person responsible for cutting up the body would have been covered in blood. Quote, they must have been agitated, they must have been acting extremely strangely. Unquote. Officers also revealed, although there was no way to confirm it due to the early nature, 
they had been informed that Amy may well have been pregnant at the time of her death. On the 17th of May, police officers had returned to an area near the crime scene. One of the officers was approached by a man called Michael MacArthur, who produced a DSS allowance book. Michael said that he had just found the book by a step leading to the container unit he was living in on the corner of Lennox Street and Wilson Street. When Michael looked more closely at the DSS allowance book, he realised it had Amy Francis Doreen Anderson written on it. Officers investigated this further and verified it was Amy's DSS book, but they were unsure how it had gotten there as they had already carried out a thorough search of that area on the 11th of May, a full six days before Michael told officers he'd found it. There was a real possibility the murderer could have returned to place the evidence there. Officers brought Michael back to the station to take a statement and realised that he had actually already given a statement previously to officers regarding his relationship with Amy. He didn't know her well, but they were both homeless and addicted to drugs, therefore often spent time with the same acquaintances, and on the 3rd of May at 12.30pm, roughly four days before Amy had been killed, she and Michael had both been at the Salvation Army Halls in Alexandria. Officers obviously had to consider that Michael could be a suspect, He had been cooperative with the police, but he was the person who found the DSS book. He knew Amy, and something very worrying came up during a further interview. Michael had confided in police that he had a dream about disposing of parts of Amy's body. Although the series of events, statements, and found DSS book were compelling, Officers didn't have enough to hold Michael and did have to let him go. However, they did continue to keep a close eye on him and in the meantime, continued their investigation. During the questioning of Michael, officers in the field were continuing their work, searching for more evidence to point them in the right direction. Although there had been a lot of leads up to this point, They didn't have anything solid and couldn't arrest anyone. At this point, Detective Superintendent Ward ordered a further search of refuse at the Jamestown site in West Dunbartonshire. He appealed again to the public, quote, Although three months have passed, there is no let-up in the search for the person or persons responsible for Amy's murder. The support services officers will be looking for an item in connection with the murder of Amy Anderson. I am not in a position to reveal what that item is, but would stress that it is not body parts. Whilst this was going on, police officers decided to further question Michael, and he came into the police station for another interview with detectives. What he told them was chilling. Michael said that on the 7th of May, 
Amy's boyfriend Brian contacted him to ask for his help. Michael said that Brian told him he needed some help in moving Amy's dismembered body from an area of waste ground just opposite an industrial estate. He added that Brian had told him he needed to conceal parts of Amy's body in mud flats on the River Leven. Michael admitted he had in fact helped Brian and wanted to come clean. Police asked Michael to give a detailed account of exactly what had happened and he told officers he had helped to dispose of Amy's head and limbs by transporting them in a pram. He agreed to lead officers to the route he and Brian had walked as well as to the area they had disposed of other body parts. However, an extensive search of the area revealed nothing and it was beginning to look like Michael was wasting police time. Although they couldn't help thinking that, given the fact he had been in possession of Amy's DSS book and he had been with her just days before her death, that he probably was involved in some way. A breakthrough did come fairly soon after, however, when forensic investigators were searching the opposite bank of the river from where Michael had originally directed officers to, officers discovered Amy's pelvis, as well as a pram, just like Michael had admitted to using to transport Amy's dismembered body. Further investigation was conducted into Michael's whereabouts on the night of the murder. Michael had admitted only to being in Amy's company days before she was killed and then after she had died. Two eyewitnesses came forward to dispute this. Thomas Sutherland told officers he had seen Michael and Amy together in North Street on the 6th of May, just a day before Amy's death. The second eyewitness, Julie McGowan, told officers that she saw Amy with Michael on the afternoon of the 7th of May, just hours before she was likely killed. It was clear that Michael had been intentionally lying to the police and attempting to lead the investigation in the wrong direction. It was becoming more and more apparent that Michael had been with Amy at the time of her death. By this point, investigators arrested Michael and charged him with the murder of Amy. What followed was a media frenzy and a trial. The public struggled to understand how a young, promising, middle-class white mother could fall into a life of addiction, drugs, sex work and robbery. During the six-week trial, Michael lodged a special defence, claiming that Amy had been killed by Brian Galloway, her boyfriend at the time. However, it was quickly shown that there was no evidence showing communication or contact between Brian and Michael, as well as the fact that during police questioning, Michael had given a statement in which it was accepted that he had told lies regarding Brian. The court heard that two men who were fishing in the early morning of the 8th of May on the River Leven 
had spotted a dishevelled man starting a fire and then tossing something large into it. They noticed that there was an awful smell coming from the fire and that a lot of black smoke was created. They also noticed a dog nearby that seemed very interested in the fire. At the time, the two men had thought nothing more of it. The fishermen hadn't reported the incident as it hadn't caused them any concern. A few days later, when they heard the news about Amy's torso being found around that area, they called police to report what they'd seen. They gave an eyewitness account that clearly described Michael. It was presented that a witness called Colin Gray was with Michael some time after the murder. Colin testified that they were discussing Amy's death and Michael broke down in front of him and said everyone was saying that he was the murderer. Colin testified that Michael then said, quote, It's me. When Colin asked him if that was true, Michael didn't respond verbally, but did bury his head. Another witness, Callum McRoberts, was present on a different occasion when, in front of Colin and Callum, Michael said, quote, I did it, but I didn't mean it, unquote. A turn came in the trial when they called Colin as a witness for the defence. A video was played showing footage of Colin leaving the address just before 3am on the 8th of May. Colin stated that he made his way into Michael's container and had arrived around 3.30am. He testified that he and Michael had remained there for a while until they left so that Michael could make a cash withdrawal. This withdrawal was recorded to be at 6.33am. The defence used this to try and make the case that Michael couldn't have killed Amy because he had an alibi. However, as there wasn't an accurate time of death within a 36-hour time period, the court did not accept that as a valid alibi. Another witness... William Clark, stated that he had been in a house in Grey Street on a date in May 2002. He was in the house for no more than five minutes, but said that he saw Amy lying face down on the floor. He could see that she was breathing, but also noticed she appeared to have stopped breathing shortly thereafter. William then left the house. Although William did stick to this version of events at the beginning of the trial, by the end of his cross-examination, his evidence was in a very confused and inconsistent state. It was submitted that he was an unreliable witness whose evidence the jury would have been entitled to attribute little weight. Another area of evidence presented was from the post-mortem examination regarding how the flesh had been cut and how the bones had been snapped. This was presented alongside a statement that showed that Michael had had previous experience in the butchering of deer, in which bones were snapped at joints. Michael had also told police that he had been involved in slaughtering sheep in a bath, 
and when probed about those kinds of jobs he held, Michael described taking the leg off an animal. It was presented that sometime on the evening of Tuesday the 7th, or in the early hours of Wednesday the 8th of May, Michael had struck Amy over and over again on various areas of her body. He had also held her down by means of, quote, compression and constriction, essentially stopping her from being able to breathe. Michael then dismembered Amy's body and loaded at least some parts of it, including Amy's torso, into a pram, before disposing of it on a waste ground on the bank of the River Leven in Alexandria. Michael then lit Amy's torso on fire in an attempt to burn and destroy any evidence, as well as the body itself. He then put the torso in the River Leven and left. Michael faced an indictment containing two charges, the first charge of murder and the second of attempting to pervert the course of justice. On the 26th of November 2004, at the High Court in Glasgow, Michael was found guilty by a majority verdict of the jury on both charges. A little less than a month later, on the 23rd of December 2004, the trial judge, in respect of the charge of murder, sentenced Michael to life imprisonment with a punishment part of 20 years and in respect of the second charge of perverting the course of justice, sentenced Michael to five years imprisonment. These sentences being ordered to run concurrently from the 1st of September 2004. Unfortunately, as awful and horrific and grim as this case is, it is about to get even grimmer. During the trial, Brian Galloway, Amy's boyfriend at the time of her murder and the man who had introduced her to heroin, attempted to attack a 15-year-old girl with the intention of raping her. The High Court in Edinburgh was told that Brian, who was dealing with drug and drinking abuse problems, grabbed the 15-year-old in June on the previous year as she walked through Cardross Village Park with a friend. His name was put on the sex offenders register and he was sent to prison for just five years. The judge said, quote, The offence to which you have pled guilty is a very serious one and must have been a very terrifying experience for the victim and her friend. It has had a very traumatic effect on both young girls, making them afraid to go out. Unquote. We are probably all aware of the recent murder of Sarah Everard, which happened here in South London just last week. Sarah's case has gained a lot of press and media coverage, as well as general attention from the public. There are a number of reasons for this. She was a white, 33-year-old woman walking home from her friend's house at 9pm on a weekday evening. We can all relate. Women do not feel safe and have not felt safe, ever. 
I do think it's important as well to talk about the forgotten victims. This story today was about Amy, and at the time of Amy's murder, her case and story were well covered because even though she was a drug addict, something that doesn't tend to sit well with newspapers of the early 2000s, or or let's be honest now, she was a white, middle-class, carefree woman with a lot of promise. Amy's case and Sarah's case should be covered. They should be well documented because they're real people who died under unfair, tragic and horrifying circumstances. But I do think it's important to also talk about the women and girls who are not spoken about, whose murders and rapes and attacks are not spoken about because they are not what the media deems an acceptable victim to mourn for. We do have to look at the base issues and the ingrained bias we have against telling these stories and against understanding them. Media coverage frames a simplistic, black and white understanding of the relationship between drug use and homelessness. The actual problem seems to be in the way that drug abuse weakens and eventually completely destroys social and institutional connections. It is difficult, albeit nearly impossible, to maintain a network of community-based connections, such as having a close group of friends or being part of a church, or even having work relationships. This, in turn, makes people who abuse drugs more prone and vulnerable to homelessness. This isn't to say people who abuse drugs don't have close friendship groups or social support groups, It's just to say that those new groups will likely be in a world they're now in, causing a divide and a misunderstanding amongst those who do abuse drugs and those who do not. Media coverage tends to represent those who use heroin as, quote, risk-bearing outsiders, and they are therefore actively excluded from society and therefore are commonly misreported or wholly underreported when those people go missing or are murdered. Red Room is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.